passage. Um, you may remember that I gave a little bit of homework last week uh, to go through Acts 27 and 28. That's a bit of a long passage and I didn't have it for the Bible reading. We might uh, pick a bit more of it next week because this is actually the start of a, a two-part mini-series uh, through Acts 27 and 28, um, which is the final chapters of uh, the book of Acts, uh, which... Yeah, I, I'm excited to, to preach through it. I know Phil's really excited. He was looking forward to it all week, so now the pressure's really on. <laughs> so, um, no, it, it, it's, it's one of the most, well, I, I believe one of the most exciting narratives uh, in, in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament. I, I really uh, hope that they, they make a movie out of it someday just because it's, it's such a, a great adventurous passage and uh, just full of suspense and drama and... Uh, uncertainty if you haven't read through it, um, if you don't know the end as, as well. And, and yet, uh, all the way through, and this is where it would be hard to, to um, have in a movie, is that there's actually a, another additional character behind the scenes. God is working in the midst of this narrative uh, to take Paul to Rome, even in the midst of all the chaos and the storms and the shipwrecks. And so this is the final two chapters of Luke's massive work. So Luke actually wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he also wrote the Book of Acts. And, and so we often think of, of, as, of Paul as being the, the major author of the New Testament, but Luke, uh, as far as volume goes, Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament than Paul did with these two massive works in, in uh, Luke and Acts. And so Acts ends with this big climax of Paul's sea voyage to Rome, and his shipwreck on Malta. And, and so with, with so many uh, cool sites along the way that they uh, sometimes visit or unintentionally visit due to the storm, uh, I, I've actually had the, the privilege of visiting a few of these sites, and so that was actually why I chose to write my, my master's thesis on, on this passage. Um, so my, my sermon, Morris will be very grateful to know, is much shorter than my thesis. So it's okay, we'll, you can drag me off by hour four. You know. No, I'll be good. And so I'll, I'll, today I'll be focusing a lot more on the archaeological evidence of this passage. There's been lots of criticism by skeptics and, and atheists that have looked at this passage and, and come up with a big long list of reasons of why they think Luke wasn't writing an eyewitness account, why he was inaccurate. Uh, and so my, my master's thesis was very much focused on um, <coughs> was very much focused on archaeological discoveries that, that point to Luke being an, an accurate eyewitness and that he was actually likely there on the ship. Sorting out a few. Is this all right? No. <coughs> Good, they can hear me kind of cough. <coughs> okay. And so, so, of course, there's lots of individual details uh, throughout the book of Acts that have come under question from skeptics. Uh, but for the, the last two chapters, it's not actually individual details, it's the entire story. Whoa, that's loud. We saw that out first. <laughs> that's really echoey behind me as well. Testing one, one two, three. <laughs> Got the cinema surround sound or something like that. Maybe that Dolby surround sound or something. <coughs> oh, that's really loud for me. You 
guys are going to get blasted. Oh, oh. Well, I don't know. Okay. Oh, you meant for me. Right. Gotcha. Okay. <coughs> good to go. Oh, everyone can hear me. Hopefully. Good enough. Let's go. <laughs> Okay, so, so basically, uh, you know, I mentioned that the, the skeptics will, um, you know, lots of individual little details throughout Luke and Acts get questioned, uh, but in this case, it's, it's the entire story, the entire sea voyage and shipwreck narrative gets called into question. Oh, nope, change it back. <laughs> Made it worse again. <coughs> uh, it's, it's the whole shipwreck narrative that gets called into question uh, because this, <laughs> doing it again. Okay. Um, I'm going to turn it down a bit or something. That's really echoey. No? Okay. I don't know. It's very different than <laughs> the past. Could be the location where you switched on the filter. Yeah. I haven't got any other spot to put it on. <laughs> anyway, like I was saying, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, is that the, the whole shipwreck narrative gets called into question because it was really, really common. In, in ancient writings for, uh, but basically if you were writing a, a novel in, in, in ancient Greece and, and you were trying to jazz up your story, you know, spice up the story a little bit, you'd throw in a, a, a crazy sea voyage or shipwreck or, uh, you know, sea tale kind of thing and, and that's how you would end your story by, by really jazzing it up with that. And so then these skeptics would look at the book of Acts and go, oh, well, Luke's just doing the exact same thing. He's trying to jazz up his story um, by throwing a sea voyage in, in at the end. <laughs> and so the problem with this theory is that I, I don't actually think the Book of Acts needs jazzing up with a, with a sea voyage at the end. You know, it's, it's, it's already got enough ad adventure that he's not trying to, to jazz it up. It's also out of character with, with Luke's style, that he, he wasn't trying to write an entertaining novel for us. He was trying to write a detailed historical account. You know, if, if he was just trying to tell an exciting story just to entertain us, you know, I don't know why he included things like the genealogy of Jesus, because his, his main focus is historical detail. So let's, let's sort of quickly set the, the scene for this passage because we're, we're starting a, a mini-series right at the end of the book of Acts, which is a bit, bit weird, but um, yeah, so it's, it's hard to get the sort of context. So basically, Paul has been in Jerusalem. He's been accused by the Jews, uh, and you know, they, they, he's stood trial before Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, but then Romans intervene and, and take him all the way to Caesarea and they don't really know what to do with him. So he has these trials where he stands before uh, a whole bunch of different guys as, you know, Felix and, and Festus and then King Agrippa and his wife Bernice. And uh, I'm sort of skipping over things. Um, but And Luke does the same same thing. He says, then he stood before Festus and then he was in prison for two years. And then he, you know, and, and he kind of continues on and it's two years of Paul's life were just summed up in one verse as, oh, and then he was in, in prison for a couple of years. And I think it would have seemed a, a little bit longer for Paul than the, the amount of time that Luke gave him in there. But so basically they start in Caesarea. He, he's giving his defense, uh, not only of the faith, you know, that he's um, the, the reason why he believes and hopes in the resurrection of Jesus, uh, but, but also uh, that he hasn't actually committed any crime that's worthy of, of death under, under Roman rule. And as, as a Roman citizen, he, he appeals to Caesar 
and, and then they agree, okay, well, I guess we'll have to send him to Caesar. And so they actually put him on a ship to send him all the way to Rome. So I've got the little map ready to go here. So this is Caesarea in Israel over here. And basically the, the gist of the, the, the next couple of chapters, which we'll go through in a bit more detail, but the, the, the summary is that they leave Caesarea, they go up past Cyprus and go to Myra, which is in southern Turkey. And so it's here that they actually change onto a, a grain ship um, that came from Alexandria in Egypt. So they get on the Alexandrian grain ship, they go past Crete, uh, stop here, and they try and get to Phoenix. And then they're trying to, they're trying to make their way up to Rome, uh, but then they get blown way off course and shipwreck on Malta. Right. So that's just to give you a big picture of the route that they, they took. So we're going to start things off looking at... Caesarea. Uh, so this is yeah where Paul was kept in prison for a couple of years and, and where they disembarked from. And, and I mentioned that uh, Luke included lots and lots of details in these lead-up passages of him giving his defense uh, before Felix and Festus, uh, who were governors of those areas, Roman rulers, and then you've got the kings, uh, King Agrippa, who he talked to, who was basically more of a Jewish representative. The, the Romans kind of allowed their local rulers to still have their kings, uh, but they were still very much under the thumb of the Roman rule at the time. But you can tell as you read through it, Luke has a really keen eye for detail. He, he always wants to uh, include titles, names, um, but it's still really loud, really echoey. I can barely concentrate. <laughs> Turn it down a bit or something. Oh, no. I can't put it anywhere else on my solar. Oh, other mic then. All right, we'll go with that. I'll, try not, I'll just be looking away there. Yeah, I'll turn this one off. There we go. Don't normally have that many problems. All righty. Go with that. Testing one, two, three. Something like that. <laughs> right. Lovely. Now I gotta try and remember where I was. <coughs> Acts twenty seven. There we go. Thank you. Okay, if you'll turn your Bibles there. No. On a boat. On a boat from Caesarea. There we go. We're paying attention. This is good. Okay. So basically uh, yeah, Luke has a really keen eye for detail, including all the, uh, the names and the titles of all the, all the leaders there. Um, and, th and that's a, a good sign that it was uh, an, historical, uh, an historically accurate account, is that he, he uses not only the correct names of the people, but even the correct titles as well and where they are from. And if you were just making up a story, it's unlikely that you would include that level of, of detail. Okay, so the first bit of evidence that I actually want to look at is from Caesarea. Oh, there we go. I've already clicked this and gone away. No, I haven't got this. There we go. Uh, so this is a little bit earlier on in the narrative. Um, basically, a guy called Pontius Pilate uh, wasn't in this section, but he was in Caesarea and earlier on in Luke's Gospel, uh, but it is relevant to, to Caesarea. Uh, so basically, prior to the middle of the 20th century... Uh, the only known mention of a guy named Pontius Pilate was in the New Testament. That, that's it. So within the Gospels, within the book of Acts, Luke does mention it at the start. And then in one of Paul's letters, he mentions Pontius Pilate. 
but they're all connected. You know, they're all within the New Testament. So the sceptics would say that, you know, it's really only one source that mentions them because it's just the New Testament. And, and they're all connected, so they could just be colluding together to write about this guy that didn't really exist. So uh, they may have either had just the one incorrect source or maybe they were fabricating the whole thing and colluding together. You know, basically saying, well, there's no evidence that he existed because there's no evidence outside the Bible. The problem with this reasoning is that it starts with the assumption that the Bible can't be trusted and if that's our only source for it, well, then we already know that it must be wrong. And you'd say, well, how, how do you know that the Bible is wrong on this? Oh, because it includes fictional characters like Pontius Pilate when there's no historical evidence for him, okay, except for where the first century documents like the New Testament say that he existed. Oh, but you can't trust... You know, so it's this circular, circular reasoning that starts with a mistrust rather than trust in, in the Bible. And, and yet there's heaps of different things in, in history where we only have one source for it and we all accept it, accept it to be true, except at the moment that it's the Bible, it has to come under far greater scrutiny. But this is what I love about archaeological evidence, and, that, and we'll be looking at a few examples of this today. Uh, but, but the thing that I love about archaeological evidence is that it's so concrete, it's so final, it, it settles the debate once and for all. You know, so the Bible says that there's this guy named Pontius Pilate, and, you know, uh, and then the sceptics come along and say, well, no, he didn't exist, there's no evidence for it. Uh, and then so this was in 1961, this, tablet, this stone tablet up here, in 1961, this was found on the underside of the steppe uh, on, uh, in, in a second century theatre, but it was actually from the first century. They, they tended to, to reuse stones, you know, a building would fall down, you'd reuse stone blocks, and so it was really interesting just how many buildings would actually have inscriptions written on them, not because it was there for any purpose, but just because it, it used to be written for something else, but it was still a really good stone block that you could just shove in. So you'll find inscriptions halfway up a wall on the inside or on the outside or upside down, um, they didn't think anything of it at the time, but archaeologists love it. So uh, It's probably a little bit hard to see on the screen there, so I've kind of translated it over there, mentions Tiberius. But the, the main thing is that the second and third line there, um, now I'm going to find that thing there, yeah, it basically says, yeah, Pontius uh, Pilatus, Prefectus Judah, uh, which is basically Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. Exactly the same name, the same title, and the same area that Luke uses to describe Pontius Pilate. But it's written there in stone. Uh, the, they use V's for U's because it turns out V's are much easier than U's when chiseling on a stone tablet. The, any curvy letters were not a... Yeah, they weren't a fan of them. So, so just, you know, it's a U. You know, but, yeah. so, but the cool thing about this tablet is it, it settles the debate once and for all. It, it's... It's over. You know, the, the skeptics say, well, he never existed, and then you find this and you go, oh, yes, he did. Done. But the thing is, the Bible didn't get proven right. The Bible was already right. It was already the Word of God. You know, but, but we can look to stuff like this and grow in confidence, you know, and, and it can be used to silence opponents, those who, who reject God's Word. When we find things like this, we verify that the Gospel authors were right all along. It proves that they did have a keen eye for detail, that we should be able to trust them. So let's get, get stuck into our, our passage in, in Acts 27. So let's, if you can open your Bibles to Acts 27, verse 1. 
Okay, so Acts 27, verses, verse 1 to 6, I'll read. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius uh, treated Paul kindly and gave him, gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, a centurion, uh, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and, and uh, put us on board. So as you can already tell, uh, so much detail of all the, the, pl the names, locations, the direction that they took, which side of Cyprus, all those sorts of things. Uh, and, and also another interesting point, did you notice, uh, it says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy. So, so prior to that, and it's a bit hard if you haven't been reading through the book of Acts, but uh, he so uh, casually goes from they did this and then Paul went here and all of a sudden it switches to, and then we went here. And, and that's because uh, Luke was actually there as an eyewitness for certain sections. That they're called the, the we passages because he, he switches to the first person as Luke was all of a sudden there. For, for the rest of this book, for the whole sea voyage, uh, Luke was there as a, a first-hand eyewitness account. Okay, so let's go back to the map. So... They've left Caesarea, they've gone around Cyprus, and they're up here in Myra in Turkey. And this is where they're going to switch to a, a ship of Alexandria, a, a big, big grain ship. So already in that first little section, I didn't think there was too much controversy there in the first section of that passage, but already it's come under fire from skeptics because clearly Luke must have got something wrong. You know, a ship from Alexandria all the way up in here in Myra. Um, they just said that that doesn't make any sense. Luke must have got it wrong. And the, the reason for that is that Alexandria, which is down here in Egypt, uh, that was basically the, the, the breadbasket of the, the, the Roman Empire. They, they relied heavily on Egyptian uh, grain, barley and wheat, uh, just to survive. Basically, Rome had expanded and grown and you know, millions of, of, of people, people there, you know, just massive cities, especially for, for its time. And so they couldn't actually grow enough grain to feed themselves. They had to import it. And, and so even in the first century, they think that, that Rome uh, required about 400,000 tonnes of grain every single year, and about 150,000 tonnes of that grain was direct from Alexandria. And that's, yeah, ev every single year. And so the question was, what was an Alexandrian grain ship doing all the way up there in Myra when it should be dropping off grain at Rome? And so some sceptics have at least conceded that Maybe the ship was blown off course, you know, uh, but, but most, most would say Luke simply got it wrong. You know, he, he, he got the port wrong or, you know, just didn't know where that ship had actually come from, you know, or even, even that it was a grain ship, just he, he was mistaken. But, but most sceptics didn't say that it was a mistake, they'd say he just got it wrong. It was, you know, this is what happens when you're making up a story, you just get details like this wrong. And, and, but most of the time, you know, they'll, they're happy with both. We'll, we'll conclude that the, the gospel writers, they're e either bumbling idiots or they're liars. We don't know which one, but as long as we're happy with, you know, picking one of them, as long as I get to reject it, it's fine. 
And of course, Christian scholars have responded to this in, in the past. They did provide several explanations, you know, looking at the different uh, winds that were most common at that time in the Mediterranean and their ability to, to sail directly to Myra. Um, and, and, you know, it, it was uh, a really good argument at the time that it, it... Basically, it was the long way to go from Alexandria to Rome. So the, the accounts that we can look at in, in the first and second centuries, they would describe people who were on these, these routes, uh, they described travelling from Rome uh, all the way back to Alexandria as taking about 10 to 13 days was the average, whereas travelling from Alexandria to Rome uh, took up to two months. And that's because you're going straight into the wind that way, and so that's why it took so much longer. Uh, so maybe it actually made sense that without compasses, they just chose to tra uh, travel directly north and then travel along the coast there. Uh, but then in, in 2009, there was actually the first uh, full-scale archaeological dig at Myra. And just flip to the next thing. My clicker isn't working. Yep. All good. So at, at the moment, the river mouth is pretty silted up there. There's not much of a port remaining there. It's um, a little bit tidal. Uh, but their digs discovered that the harbour was much, much, much deeper 2,000 years ago. It, it had several docking ports, businesses, a synagogue, basically com confirming that this was a, a thriving metropolis a couple of thousand years ago. And it was a successful port. Uh, but the most important discovery was a massive grain silo. This one up here. And it was built uh, by the Emperor Hadrian in the, in the second century. And so the aerial shot you know, sort of shows just how massive this thing is and, and with all the separate sections for the different types of, of grain. You know, so Myra must have been a massive grain port in the first century for Hadrian to then go and build it in the early second century. So basically Luke's details perfectly fit the narrative that it's perfectly reasonable that a grain ship was there in Myra in the first century on its, on its way to Rome. So let's continue on in our passage. So this is from verse 6 onwards of Acts 27. It says, There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with great difficu with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was near the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will not, not be with injury and much loss. As I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbour was not suitable to spend the winter winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbour of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So next we come to the, the, uh, the Greek island of, of Crete and so they made it to uh, Fair Havens by the city of Lycia 
uh, which, as, as you zoom, the, the cool thing about this is that you can actually check out these sites on Google Earth and see up-to-date satellite Im imagery of all these different harbours. And so when they say that it wasn't a great place to winter, you can zoom in and see that that's accurate. It's completely open. There's no little bays or harbours. It's completely exposed to the south. Uh, not a great place to, to spend the... When, when it says to winter there, it literally means to um, put the anchors down and spend the entire winter there. So. And so next they, they headed on to uh, Cape Morris, which is where uh, Phoenix is, but they never actually made it, um, which is interesting that Luke actually manages to describe the harbour, uh, even though they never actually made it, so he's describing places where he's never even been, uh, which is actually, uh, yeah, a, a likely result of being an eyewitness on on a ship where you've got all the sailors and soldiers discussing whether to, whose advice to take and, you know, why they should ignore Paul and... Um, and so he managed to describe it as this um, this uh, harbour facing both southwest and north northwest. Now I was about to say that there's a lot of details that I'm skipping over, so maybe I'll, I was about to say, well, I know Phil, Phil will want a copy of my thesis, but come, come, other people can come up and ask for it afterwards as well, because I have to skip over lots here. But just, just briefly, it, it is interesting that there, there is actually an inscription found at Phoenix um, by a second century Alexandrian grain ship that spent the winter there. So it's sort of a, an indication that it was actually a, a common route. Uh, let, let's continue reading on uh, verse 13 to 15. It says, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along uh, along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So we don't have uh, time to go into the full description of, of what actually happened, all the discussions during, during the storm. We'll, we'll go through some of that next week. But basically the cause of everything, all of it coming unstuck, the whole um, you know, risk to the ship and it being torn to shreds and the eventual um, you know, being blown off course and the eventual shipwreck on Malta, all of that came down to just those verses there. A, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster. But that's actually a, a, a translation. That's that's our version in the in the ESV. It says the northeaster. Uh, if you read it in things like the the NASB, it actually uh, doesn't choose to interpret it. It just uses the Greek word or the word that he uses, which is uh, Euroquilo. And so throughout this whole passage, Luke loves using technical details, and and, and we don't always know exactly what he's talking about. You know, when he uses um, you know sailing terminology. Uh, you know, he talks about sea anchors or different techniques that they would use to tie the ship together to protect it from the winds. We don't don't always know exactly what he was talking about, but that that can be a good sign that he's using using this terminology that you know pretty rare words that a, a first century reader who's familiar with you know what sea anchors are or what you know all these things are they they would know exactly what he's talking about. But but this time a, a wind called Euroquilo. Or, or supposedly a, a northeaster, you know, he, he must have stuffed up this time, because it's, it's not, you know, the skeptics would see this as it's not even a proper word. He he doesn't know what he's talking about, because it's not this word that he uses for this storm. This this wind isn't found anywhere in any writing in all of human history. 
So that's how the accusation went anyway, that he, he must have got it wrong. He's just made up a word or he's, he's just mistaken. And then there are heaps of ancient writings where we can look at sea voyages. It's not like they were uncommon words. We, we know the Greek and the Latin words for north, south, east and west, things like that, because there's plenty of different accounts that use directions. So it's, it's really easy to figure out what these words are. But this time he's using a word that isn't found anywhere else. Uh, but it's been translated as northeaster. Uh, I am, that's right, I'm saying. Uh, it's been translated as northeaster uh, because we can still work out what he was trying to say. And I've said, does anyone know what a windrose is? But I've already gone and put it up there with the slides anyway. So that is what a windrose looks like. But I'll just assume that Phil would have got it anyway. So, so basically, uh, this is how they can figure out why they translate it as a northeaster is because you have uh, Euros is, is the, not Euro, not that kind of Euros, but you know, it is a Greek word, but you know, I'm assuming it's pronounced differently, I don't know. The, or maybe that was the direction that the Euros shop was in, was, was it southeast or something, I don't know. But anyway, so that was the Greek word for, for a southeast wind, uh, and then you have Aquila was the Latin word for, for a north wind, and so basically they're saying, well, he's combined the two, so the direction must be somewhere in between those two directions, and that's why it's an east-northeast wind, uh, called Euroquillo, it's some weird Greek-Latin hybrid where he's combined the two. But since the word isn't found anywhere else, and since he's gone and combined two different directions, and since he's combined two different languages, he was clearly just confused and didn't know what he was talking about. But once again, the archaeological discoveries settle the debate. So then, this was in 1904, there was this archaeological dig in Tunisia, and they actually found in the town square was this massive, it was eight and a half metres wide, there's this massive windrows etched into the floor of the town square with all the different directions uh, written, scattered the whole way around the town square. And so not only do we know the names of all the different um, wind directions, we, we also know their exact position as well because they're all laid out in the exact order and, and correct direction. And then sure enough, Euroquillo, the word that Luke uses that hadn't been found anywhere else in all of human history, is etched right into the stone on the ground in this place called Tuga in, in Tunisia. So it's, again, it settles the debate once and for all. Luke must have been an eyewitness. He was sitting there on a ship with first century sailors talking about the directions and the names of the winds. It, it's the fingerprint of a genuine eyewitness account. And, and, I mean, the even cooler thing is that what we expect to see is if that is the correct direction, well, it's probably going to blow them pretty much straight towards Malta as well. So each time there are these, these discoveries, it further points uh, to, the, to the accuracy and authenticity of the Bible. It, it points towards Luke being an eyewitness who recorded extraordinary events in history in which God was at work with his people. So we don't actually have to live in constant doubt uh, but we also don't have to be waiting for the next silver bullet, the next big piece of evidence that's finally going to prove it once and for all. Because it's a cumulative case. We, we look at these things and go, oh, yeah, that, that's really cool. It keeps adding more and more confidence to our faith. It's not the, oh, well, I was living in constant doubt. Oh, but now this one discovery, now that's tipped me over the edge. You know, it gives us assurance of what we already know to be true. We already trust God's word. We already believe that it's the foundation. You know, we already believe that he's revealed himself through Jesus Christ, you know, and whose words and deeds were recorded in his word. You know, we, we trust him, but, but it's okay to look to, and study the evidence. 
You know, Jesus said this in, in John 14. He said, Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting evidence here. Like Jesus is basically saying, you know, he's, he's claiming to be the Messiah, he's claiming to be sent from the Father, and he says, well, if you don't believe me, well, look at the miracles that I'm doing. Look at the evidence, like, see for yourself. And that, that's the, the whole reason why Luke has written this account. He's recorded all these details for us. He's saying, see for yourself. Come and look at the evidence. Look at what I've recorded for you so that you can believe. And, and that's why I chose the, the Bible readings uh, earlier on at the, at the start uh, with, the, oh, slide, uh, with the start of Acts and Luke. I think I've got them written on there. Uh, yeah, so, you know, at the start, start of Luke, or um, is it, in verse 3 and 4, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And, and, and right at the end of Acts 1-3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he wrote these things, he recorded history so that we might have certainty. And now it says that Jesus has presented himself alive with many proofs. <coughs> so I've, I've heard um, some apologists, so apologists are people who do apologetics, they're normally academics who defend, defend the faith. You know, they'll, they'll give arguments as to why, you know, the existence of God or the resurrection of Jesus... But, but I've heard some of them describe it as the most probable option. You know, it, it, it best fits the evidence. That we can't really know for sure, uh, you know, we, you know that, that the, the best evidence, you know, the best evidence points to us that, that we think that God most probably exists or that Jesus most probably rose again. But we're not called to think like that, you know. Luke, Luke says that we can have certainty. We, we don't think that, well, maybe God exists or maybe Jesus rose again. We have confidence and we have certainty through what's been written. And we have true hope because God himself intervened in history and then he intervened in our lives. We don't just know about God, we don't know of God, but we know him personally. That's the certainty that we can have. And so this has been the continual testimony of people since the New Testament times uh, and we haven't actually got up to the, the shipwreck in, in Malta part. Um, you know, what's actually going to happen? Stay tuned for next week, you know, to be continued and all of that. Um, and there's not actually that much uh, physical, archaeological evidence of the shipwreck, and that's what you'd expect because it's a shipwreck. You know, the, the ship got destroyed, the wooden pieces would have gone everywhere, they floated ashore on planks of wood, and I'm sure it would have made really good firewood in the middle of winter there, so there's a reason why we haven't found, found a ship there. <coughs> uh, but despite not finding any of that archaeological evidence, uh, and there are various books that claim to have found the, the one true site and all of that. Um, I don't think they're very compelling, but come and talk to me about it, why afterwards. You know. um, but the, the main evidence that Paul went to Malta is, is the church, the continuation of the church in Malta. God intervened in the lives of people in Malta 
and radically shaped and transformed that island for centuries to come. And that has been the running theme throughout history, that, that God has intervened to rescue his people. And we can be confident that God is continuing that work because he's doing it in our own lives all the way here. It may not have been through missionaries who were shipwrecked on York Peninsula, but, um, but God still sent people all the way to the far-off lands of, of South Australia, you know, centuries later. So when it comes to the, the whole topic of apologetics and looking at the evidence and, and verifying the accuracy of his word, the, the, <clears throat> the, the most important question is, is, have you believed the gospel? You know, do, do you live in constant doubt or uncertainty? Or, you know, or, or maybe you're putting your hope in the next big discovery, you know, I'll believe, you know, only if they, they find this next proof. You know, you're still waiting for some kind of sign that will tip you over the edge or convince you. Now, I've had atheists tell me that I'll, I'll, I'll be more than happy to believe, but only if you show me enough evidence. And, and I normally ask, well, what would be enough evidence? And they don't really know how to answer that because it's an ever-changing goalpost. You know, you, it's, it's easy to not believe if you say, you know, I'll only believe if you show me enough evidence. And then, oh, no, but that's not enough. Okay, well, what about now? Oh, no, that's not enough. And you can just keep shifting the goalposts. You know, I'll only believe if God does this for me. You know, he, he, he needs to answer my prayers in a certain way or he needs to reveal himself to me in a certain way. You know, I'll believe if God you know, comes down here and shows me himself. And the, real, the reality is he already did. He already came down and showed himself in Jesus Christ. And that's why we can trust him and trust his word. It is his self-revelation. And that's everything. It, it matters completely if this is true. Because why is this important? You know, why, why have I gone through some random archaeological evidence that, that some of you will find interesting and some, some of you won't? But why, why does it matter? You know, why does it matter if, if Luke is an eyewitness, if he's writing an accurate account? You know, why is it important? What difference does it make whether Paul really travelled from Caesarea to Rome or if some guy just wrote it down claiming that he travelled from Caesarea to Rome? What, what difference does it make? Well, I'd say when it comes to spreading the gospel, it, everything, it, it makes all the difference whether this is true. Because, because these passages aren't just about an historical record. These passages are about the character of God and how God is at work in the world and how he's saving people and how we're to respond. So if these narratives aren't true, then what's the point and what are we to believe about it? Like some, some people say that it doesn't, doesn't really matter whether it's true or not you know, because the, the values are still true. You know, you can still learn about the character of God or certain moral values, you know, even if they're not true historical events. It's about the principles, moral lessons. Uh, so, some of you might have heard of a guy called uh, Ben Shapiro, a, a Jewish conservative political commentator. Uh, just a, a week or two ago, I was listening to him talk about uh, how he instructs his kids, you know, and teaches them values and the importance of, of sharing stories from the Bible as a means of, of uh, conveying those values. And he said, I, I teach my kids the stories first because the values are embedded in the stories. 
He says, do I have questions about the stories? What per rational person wouldn't have questions about the stories? Of course you, ha you have questions about the reality or historicity of the stories, but that doesn't undercut the importance of the stories or that you have to believe fundamental assumptions embedded in the stories in order for the values to be true. So he's basically saying, it doesn't really matter if it really happened or not, you know, because the values are still there. But, but how can they teach about the character of God if the stories aren't even true? Like, what, what, are, what do they actually teach you about God if he has to use made-up stories in order to teach it? Like, if, if I came to you today and I wanted to teach you about my values and, and how, you know, I'm, I'm one of the most generous people around, I'm just so overwhelmingly generous and oh, I have a story to illustrate that for you and I, I went to tell you this detailed story of how I gave millions of dollars to charity just last year and I'm just, so, aren't I so generous? And, and you went... Wow, is is that true? I go, well, no, no, but but the story still teaches you the values of just how generous I am. You know, it's all it's all made up, but the the values are still there. But it doesn't tell us anything. It, it matters if the story is true. You know, we learn about God's character by reading about what He's actually done. You know, I'm not going to trust in a God who reveals, himself, reveals his character by having to lie about what he's done. You know, as, as Leonard Ravenhill puts it, the Bible is either absolute or obsolete. They're your only options. And so when we see the authenticity of the scriptures, when we read his accounts and look at the evidence of how Jesus backed up his claims as to his identity, when we see uh, how God worked mightily through the apostles and tipped the Roman world upside down, when we see God working today through that same gospel, we have certainty that it's true. We have great confidence that all of this is true because God broke into humanity, stepped down into history and performed the greatest miracle of all. That's restoring the broken relationship between God and humanity in His death on the cross for our sins. He was dying in our place, taking our punishment and then the next greatest miracle was that he rose again from the dead to, to give us eternal life. That, that, that's what gives us hope, is that he physically, actually, historically rose from the dead and defeated death once and for all. That's the, the final enemy that, that comes against us. And yet when he defeats that, that gives us hope. And, and obviously that, that's a whole other sermon series or, or an entire book or a, an entire... Um, you know, semester of study or more, you know, just to, to look at all the historical evidence of the Gospels and, and of Christ's death and even of the resurrection. Uh, there's so much that you could look in. You know, I've just scratched the surface today. There's so much that we could look into. And, and it, is, it is amazing to look into. And it's because it makes all the difference in the world. It, it matters if it's true because our hope of our own resurrection, our hope of eternal life, fully relies upon Jesus actually living on our behalf, dying in our place and physically rising from the dead. A few years ago, I studied a couple of theology topics at Adelaide College of Divinity, which is the Uniting Church Bible College. It was linked with, I was doing a degree at Flinders, so they were linked. I didn't know what I was in for at the time. And I was talking to to one of the guys who was studying to become a minister, and and we were talking about the resurrection. And he said, "Yeah, you know, of course that the resurrection is true. In in that Jesus' message lives on in all of us. That that's that's what it means. Resurrection, you know, his, his message is ongoing and living on. 
um, I was kind of a little bit confused as to what he was really getting at because I didn't, surely he's not, you know, denying the resurrection, but, you know, probed a little bit further. I'm like, well, what do you mean his message? I was like, well, you know, his message to, to love your neighbour, to feed the poor, you know, that, that message has transformed the world and lives on in all of us and that's what resurrection means. I'm like, well, that's, that's good. It's partially true. Jesus did teach us to love our neighbour. He did teach us to feed the poor. But, but he also claimed to be the Messiah, he also claimed to be God incarnate. He claimed to be the saviour of sinners. He claimed that he had the power to give his life up and to take it back again. So it kind of matters if he really did then. Because if he made those type of claims, it's, you know, as C.S. Lewis put it, he, he's either liar, he's lunatic, or he's Lord. He can't just be a good moral teacher and nothing more. You know, the, the resurrection, the true physical resurrection means that we have confidence that we'll have eternal life. And so that means I'm not interested in wasting my Sunday mornings worshipping a dead saviour who's still in a hole in the ground, who taught us some nice moral platitudes that we all need to kind of continue on and that's the extent of what resurrection means. It's just a waste of time. You know, the, 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 the mindset that Jesus was just a good moral teacher that we can learn from and it doesn't you know it doesn't really matter if it all really happened because you know the values are still true that we can still learn from it it's rubbish it's rubbish because our hope is in a true and living savior it it changes everything it is the most transformational idea in human history and and this was uh, a few years ago back when i i used to subject myself to the horrors of q and a um there was, I, I used to, uh, yeah, uh, there was a guy called uh, Peter Hitchens, who's a, uh, a Christian journalist, and he's actually the, the brother of the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens. Uh, the, the guests were all in Sydney for this Dangerous Ideas Festival, uh, and they were each, they were each asked, uh, which so-called dangerous idea do you think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better, if it were implemented? You know, and then there are a whole bunch of uh, ideas thrown out by these different guests. You know, one person said we should have population control and one said that, you know, parents shouldn't force their ideas upon their own children and all sorts of terrible ideas that won't actually make the world a better place. They're pretty uninspiring stuff. And then, then it cuts to Peter Hitchens, which, can you just get the quote up? Next one, yep. He said, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. It alters the whole of human behaviour and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope. And therefore, we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters, it alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us as well. It is incredibly dangerous and is why so many people turn against it. And then it was kind of met with awkward silence, of, uh, yeah, as you'd expect. But, it's, but it is so profound that it, this, it changes everything. Whether, whether this really happened, whether Jesus came to live a life on our behalf, to die in our place and to rise again from the dead. If it didn't happen, then we're wasting our time and there is no hope for the future. But if it's true and God has recorded this in, in His Word, then it changes everything because it means that there is justice in the future, it means that we are going to be held to account for our sins and our actions, but it also means that there's hope. There's hope 
for eternal life. And so God calls you to believe in him. And he calls you to trust in him and trust in his gospel. So let's, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, that you have revealed yourself in your word. We thank you that we can see who you are in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you offer mercy towards us and forgiveness through uh, Jesus' death on the cross. And I thank you that you offer us the hope of eternal life through his true and living and bodily resurrection. That's all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And on, on that note, I'll, uh, we're just going to head straight into communion. And so uh, it's just a, an opportunity to us to reflect and to remember that the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that, our, that His blood 